You guys enjoy that worship this morning? Wasn't that good? Yeah, thank the Lord for his gifting among us. He is so faithful to bless us exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think or deserve. Amen? His grace. Good uh, worship culture here. Thank you for being part of that. Um, if the Lord takes us home today, we'll finish up our worship in heaven. We'll never stop. That'll be great. <clears throat> no more clocks. I can't wait. No more clocks. It's going to be good. Several times we've been honored to talk with city leaders, fire department, personnel, police officers, first responders, mayors, following a devastating hurricane. I could list off all of the various hurricanes God has opened the door to us as a church, our disaster relief ministry, and I'm in my mind, it's very fresh. Those conversations, you never forget them, especially if you are welcomed into a community where they have lost a lot of life. You look around and some areas of that community are completely gone. It doesn't look the same. The catastrophe created so much chaos that everyone you look at has like these deer in the headlight eyes, and they're open. People who were not open are now radically open. That's why the Lord, I believe, called us into those particular settings. But there's also some similar things that I remember. That in each case, when there's a loss of life, the, the leaders who were outspoken, the leaders who gave the warnings, the leaders who were telling their community, this is going to be different than any other storm. You need to leave. You need to be prepared. And then we would talk to them, and some of them, I could remember a mayor in one city in a fire department crying over, they were just getting another number, like an account of the bodies they recovered that day following Katrina. And he was like, but we warned them. We warned them. And we warned them. And then in the days to follow, you would be talking to their loved ones and their friends who lost a loved one or a friend, and they would say they did not heed the warning. The, the, it was a familiar warning. We always have hurricanes coming. Oh, it's just going to be like the next time and, or the previous time. And this one was different. And there's just something about the human nature. We can, we can hear a warning and hear a warning and hear a warning, and we're like, just ah, that's just a familiar voice. It's just a familiar warning. We are moving into a passage of Scripture where if I could put up the graph, they're going to put up a graph of what we see to be the tribulation period, the apocalypse, the unveiling, the book of Revelation is very much filled with warnings about the future. Warnings we want to take serious, warnings that we want to heed, warnings that we don't want to miss. Warnings we don't want to go, oh, I've heard that before. Or you know what, not, not now, not no, no, no. Maybe in the future, but not now. It's, it's, it's human nature to just kind of become numbed to that. But as we look at the book of Revelation, it is unveiling many things that are going to happen in the future. This is exactly what the book does. And it shows us some very difficult days. Like the world is not moving in a direction where we would say things are going to get better. The Bible shows a world that is moving in a direction where things are going to get far worse. And so as we open up the book of Revelation, I want to talk like you haven't been here before just for a minute and bring you up to where we are. At the beginning of the Revelation, at the book of the Revelation, we have what we would call right here the present age. And the present age is just where we're sitting right now. We're talking to Christians. I'm going to assume you're believers or you're here because you want to know more about Jesus Christ. And we pray that this morning you give your life to Jesus Christ, whether here or, or, or online. Amen? That's a big... Big thing. But this is just the timeline, okay? Well, in Revelation 4 and 5, the church is called up. It's called the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about that. Chapters 4 and 5 talk about that in the book of Revelation. And once the church is taken up, we step into what we see this three and a half year period. Actually, it's a seven year period called the tribulation period. And it's broken into two parts, to two halves. The first three and a half years, it's going to be bad. The second half, Three and a half years, it's going to get way worse. 
Why do I show you this chart? Because this is it. This is the end. How many of you guys feel like maybe we're getting towards the end? Whoa. Amen. Maranatha. I don't even need to teach this Bible study this morning. You guys are ready. But it's important to understand the timeline. Where we pick up in chapter 13, we're still in the middle of the tribulation period. So we're somewhere right in, in here. And there's a couple of things that really trigger the second half of the tribulation period. And, and it begins to just get worse. One is with this individual that we're going to dive into and get to know a little bit more this morning. He is known as the Antichrist. Several titles assigned to him through Scripture. We'll give you all of those. A lot of good note-taking today. A roadmap. It would be good to take notes today, by the way. A lot of Scriptures we're going to give you. But it's a roadmap showing where we're going and where the world is going. We know where we're going. We're going up right there in that first arrow. Amen? Amen. As believers. But somewhere around the middle of the tribulation period, the Antichrist will have already come on the scene. He comes on the scene with the first seal judgment. The first seal is opened up. And there's this white horse, and he has a bow and no arrows. And it's a picture of the Antichrist. It's a picture of someone coming to bring peace. No arrows, but the bow. The white horse means that he is an imitator. We know that Jesus will also come a second time. Notice here, we have the present age, then we have the rapture of the church, then we have what we call the second, the, the return of the church, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Two separate events. Jesus Christ, the rapture, he's coming for his church. Seven years later, following the tribulation period, he comes with his church. That's the second coming. In between that, the Antichrist is going to do something. This guy who comes, and we're going to see, comes to bring peace and will establish peace. He will be known globally. But somewhere halfway through, he's going to have this event. He's going to be part of it. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 24. And Daniel talks about it in Daniel chapter 9, and it's called the abomination of desolation. It's not a complicated, it's, a, it's more difficult to pronounce than to explain the event. The event is simply this. This world leader who is going to help the Jews reestablish, reinstate their daily sacrifices, which means that there's got to be a temple there. They won't just do it anywhere. And so I believe he's going to find an inroad to the Jews. They're going to recognize him as his Messiah. We've, we've talked about that and shown why we believe that. And then somewhere along there, he's going to be helping them rebuild their temple. In order to do that, he would have to be a good deal maker, a broker kind of guy, brokering a deal with the Arabs and the Jews in order for that to happen, okay? Halfway through the tribulation period, he's going to walk into that temple. They're going to say that he's their Messiah, the Orthodox Jews today do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They're looking for a Messiah, though. And if you were to go check off the boxes, who will he be? What will he be like? What will he do? You would basically go, they're explaining what we know the Bible to define the Antichrist to be. But halfway through the tribulation period, he's going to walk into that temple, and he's going to say that I am God. And that is going to be the abomination of desolation. If you were not here on Wednesday night, we went into very deep waters regarding the God taking care of his nation, the nation of Israel, in the latter part of the tribulation period. If you weren't here, all the studies are online. You can go and check them out on our app or online. But that is going to really kick off the second part of the tribulation period, which we know to be the great tribulation period. It's known as just that. This is where we pick up in chapter 13. So just for the sake of picturing in your mind's eye. The Antichrist will have already been on the scene for three and a half years. He would have been known globally. He would have been respected. A peace broker, someone comes along and brokers peace in the Middle East right now, you think the world might go, ah. Oh. Yeah, they will. But then his true colors are about to be shown here in chapter 13. So the stage is very much set. First, we want to talk about who he is in verse 1. John's in this vision, he sees. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns, ten crowns, and on his heads, 
on those heads a blasphemous name. So again, understand that the book of Revelation doesn't just show a world out of control. It shows a world that is getting worse and will succumb to eventually the judgment of God upon the Christ rejecting. The idea is that it's basically showing us that God is in control of all of these events. Even when the Antichrist comes to power, God is in control of that. So the question remains today, is the Antichrist alive? Can we know who he is? Do we know who he is? There's been books written about who the people think, every, everything from you know, Henry Kissinger to Ronald Reagan to you know, all the popes and all the, the, the presidents and all the king's men. You know, there's, there's all of these guys that love to speculate and, and really focus on the Antichrist. I've never been one of those guys because my focus is on Jesus Christ. I'm waiting for his return. But for the sake of argument, could it be on the world today? Absolutely. We're going to learn some, some things about him. I'm going to speak firmly against him because the Bible wants us to kind of look at him as like a, an enemy. And I don't think I'll ever meet him, so I can say what I want to say right now. So, <laughs> But he won't come to power until a specific event takes place. You say, what is that? Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 8, speaking of the Antichrist, it says... And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. What's holding him back from being manifest. And then it, Paul says, well, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, and it's interesting there, the word he is capitalized. Who is now restraining will do so until he, capitalized, is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. You look at that word he, it's speaking of a person. It's speaking of the third person of the Godhead. It's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And so you're like, well, when is the Holy Spirit going to be like, you know, taken away? Well, the Holy Spirit resides in us. And so I believe that what is holding the Antichrist back is God, okay? But there's a set time that when God takes the church off of planet Earth, and there's a lot of studies about the role of the Holy Spirit continuing on, the, on, on planet Earth, which it, he will. But as far as the, the Earth right now, God using believers by virtue of his Holy Spirit working in and through them, there's just this restraining force, if you will, holding the Antichrist back from not just being revealed, but from beginning to act out what the Bible says he will do on planet Earth. And so I believe when the rapture happens that this, this world's going to go into crazy chaos. It's, you're like, it can get worse. It's going to get far worse. It's going to get out of control. And, it, and then the stage will be set like I believe never before for a world that is looking right now for competent Leadership. Every nation right now around the world would say we have a void and competent leadership. Every nation. At least the citizens would. Could I hear an amen? amen? And I believe the stage is being set for someone that will wow the world and at least give off the impression that he is everything they need. And that's where we're going in these next few chapters. It'll be fascinating. But he's also called in Daniel chapter 7, the little horn. He's called the prince who is to come in Daniel chapter 9. The king who does as he pleases in Daniel 11. And the foolish and the worthless shepherd in Zechariah chapter 11. We'll do a deeper dive on those scriptures in just a minute. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we're learning a lot about him in that passage, he's called the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the one whose coming is in according to uh, in accord with the activity of Satan, and then here we see him labeled as the beast. Chapter eleven, chapter thirteen, chapter fourteen, and chapter nineteen, he will be referred to in the book of Revelation as the beast. But he's known most as the Antichrist. Fact of the matter is, I've been raised in the church, and I've been 
reminiscent. I've been thinking about all of the times that our pastors and our churches would be like highlighting the book of Revelation. There's like a surge in attendance. I find that even when we get closer to the like topics of the Antichrist, we, we even market that a little bit more. There's a draw to want to know about this guy and, and what part of him fits the narrative of the world or the other way around right now. Even, even right now, some of you might be here, hey, we're getting into chapter 13. We're going to be talking about the Antichrist. You got to go. It's important. More important to someone to go, we're talking about Jesus Christ and you got to go. <laughs> amen. Can I hear a better amen than that? That was really, that was like, I don't know. Okay. That was so like not amen. Amen means so be it. Or I agree with you, Lance. But he's rising up out of the sea. The word sea there, oftentimes in the scriptures, is used to picture nations. Hear me. In chapter 17 of the book of Revelation, it's used for Gentile nations. And it's also used for nations in that area, like close to the Mediterranean Sea. So it seems to lend itself towards where the Antichrist might come initially and begin to really be recognized. Somewhere Gentile nations around possibly Israel. He comes up out of that. And it also talks about seven heads with crowns and ten, ten horns. And that speaks about where he's going to set up his base, his headquarters during the latter part of the tribulation period. The seven heads speak possibly of Rome. We know that... Uh, Rome will be, is built on seven hills. Many believe that is where his base will be. The ten horns. 600 years prior to this, Daniel has this King Nebuchadnezzar just crazed over some dreams that he was having. And he wanted some interpretation. And in Daniel chapter 2, verses 32 through 35, there's this image that the king has. And the image has... A head that was like fine gold and chest and arms that were of silver. Its, its belly and its, its thighs were like bronze and the, the legs of iron and the toes and the feet partly of iron and partly of, of clay. Now, if you just read that and the chapter stopped there, you'd be like, this is a bizarre dream or a vision. If you were King Nebuchadnezzar, you'd be like, what's it mean? Well, get the guy that can interpret these things. And what he was seeing is he was seeing all of the world-ruling empires in sequence. Kind of a bizarre thing. Each section represented a kingdom, this is important, that ruled over the earth, that ruled over the known world, if you will, for a period of time. They were looked at as world empires. Then you move through the chapter and Daniel begins to interpret the dream in Daniel 2, 36 through, 30, or 36 through 43. He's like, okay, and just remember this. The head of gold, that's you and your empire, Nebuchadnezzar. The chest and the arms of silver, that, that represents the Medes and the Persians. That's around 539 B.C. The, the belly and the thighs of bronze, that's the, the Grecian Empire around 330 B.C. But then it starts getting fascinating because it starts talking towards kingdoms that are going to be coming towards, well, our era and moving towards the end of time. The, the legs of iron represent the Roman Empire, 63 B.C. And then the toes, they represent the kingdom that will be in place, hear me, right before Jesus comes back, the second coming, and establishes his kingdom on earth. Each toe represents a nation. All of these nations will be nations, fascinating, that are going to be revived out of the old Roman Empire. And so the last, the last world government will be made up of ten nations... And each of those nations would have been part of, historically, the old Roman Empire. This is what John is speaking about with the ten horns. The ten horns represent the leaders of those ten nations. The final government that will be set up 
on the earth before Jesus comes. So when the Antichrist rises to power, you will see him pull together a ten-nation confederation. Nations, again, that were all part of the old Roman Empire. The uh, Roman Empire, of course, officially came to an end in 476 A.D. And there have been men that have tried to garner up uh, and, and, and kind of revive, if you will, the old Roman Empire. Um, it was Charlemagne, uh, Napoleon, even Hitler. You know, the, the, the nursery rhyme, if I say it, I don't want to say it too many times, it gets stuck in our head, but uh, these nursery rhymes, none of them are good to read to your kids, by the way. They're freaky. But uh, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great... All of the king's horses and all of the king's men... Some of you guys know your nursery rhymes. We're going to quote a couple scriptures right now, too. See where you go with that. <laughs> but how many of you have ever tied that to the Charlemagnes, the Napoleons, and even the Hitlers that have tried to put the Roman Empire back together again? Listen, they couldn't, but one day the Antichrist will. Maybe he'll run around singing that song. I don't know. <laughs> no takers. Simple note, all governments of man will fail. The final government made up of the ten nations, the ten toes, and its united leaders, the ten horns, united under the Antichrist, will also fail. You see, following that description, that image of the feet and the toes, and the final government that will be in place, they're all global. They're all one world governments. The final one will be a world government, a one world government. Following that in Daniel 2 verse 44 and 45 it says, and in those days of the kings, which is the confederation of ten nations that make up a kingdom that will dominate the world in the end under the authority of the Antichrist, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to another. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. It's a reference to Jesus coming back, Messiah, and all of that. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God was made known to the king. What will come to pass after this? The dream is certain. And its interpretation is absolutely sure. All of, the, all of the governments of man will have the same end. The final government of man will have the same end. And it will give way, like all of the former kingdoms gave way to future kingdoms, the last kingdom or last one world government will give way to a kingdom that will never end. That's why it's foolish, is it not, to put our faith in something that will fail? Isn't it foolish to put your, your faith in something that will fail? Yeah. So right now you're, you're going, yeah, it's foolish to put our faith in human governments. It's foolish to put our faith in man. We should stand up as Christians for our freedoms. We should stand up and... And, and fight for righteousness. We should stand up and fight for what is moral, what is, what is biblical. We should stand against unrighteousness, what is evil and what is unbiblical. We, 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 we should vote and encourage others to vote their biblical values. Christians should stand and fight for God in their house, in the halls of the schoolhouse. And if they get called into you know, the public square or into political life, the halls, even up to the White House. We should stand up for our freedoms, for our faith. Amen? We should. That's all part of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 13. Occupy till I come. Continue being salt and light. And don't lose hope. Fight for the unborn. Fight for your religious liberties. Fight for biblical marriage. Fight for the nuclear family. Fight. Stand up. But as we stand and as we fight, we must keep our faith in the one we represent. We are Christians. We are followers of Christ. Amen. We are Americans. 
But the moment you and I gave our lives to Jesus Christ, something superior began to rule and reign in our lives. And that's Jesus. You need to fight for everything that is true and right and holy and pure and biblical. We must fight against the isms, this fight against secularism, fight against wokeism. I don't know if that's an official word, but I just made it that. <laughs> or jokeism. I don't know what you're going to call it. But fight against anti Semitism. All of that's very important, but we should be. Informed, we should be engaged, but as we stand and fight, we need to keep our priorities straight. There's a lot of great causes. I could list them off. Some of you are about a cause, good cause. Fight for, for the life of the unborn, that's a great cause. Fight for what God has defined marriage to be, that's a great cause. Fight for what our kids should be learning in school and not this demonic stuff that they're trying to lace in their little simple minds in school. It's a great cause. And we're all about that. But when Pilate talked to, to Jesus and was interrogating him towards the, the close of his life, he's like, for what cause have you come into this world? What was his cause? It was the greater cause. And he talked about him being a king. And for this reason, I have come into the world. That's my cause. It's about me and getting people into my kingdom. That should always be our superior cause. And when it is, you'll be heavenly minded. You'll be kingdom Jesus focused. You follow me? And you're not going to be earthly kingdom minded. And you'll just sleep better at night. Because this is not your home. I, I was raised at a church that far too often they would do this. I'm not going to do it to you this morning. I don't think. But they would say, look at your neighbor and tell them. And then they would say something. And, and I, I, I didn't like it at first until I realized when I was like in junior high, if I sat next to a cute girl, it's like, I, come on, get to that part, Pastor. Look to your neighbor. Ha, ha. And I'm all banaka. Hello. Jesus loves you too. You know, but look to your neighbor right now, whoever it is, and say, this is not my home. Don't look at me. You ready? Here we go. One more time. I'm going to do it two times in 2023, and this is both. Heaven is my home. Look at them and tell them heaven is my home. Now, first of all, you're like, thank you, Pastor Lance, for not doing that on a regular basis. It's just goofy. But it's true, isn't it? It's true. And, and did you notice the, the kind of smiles in the room? The awkward smile. I haven't looked at my wife since like yesterday. We're in a fight. But heaven's my home. I'll stop there. I can run with that the rest of the morning. You want to see a Christian that's born again, and I mean this, but they're bummed out. They're bitter. They're angry, they're mad, and they're talking about people that don't agree with them politically, socially, economically, and they talk with disdain. Ah, I believe they're saved, but they've given far too much time focusing on the empire called planet Earth. You follow me? It's earthly minded. Now you're not fighting for Jesus' cause. When Jesus was on this earth, he didn't have that too. No, 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 no. He, he loved his enemies. He loved them. And he went to them. And he gave his life for them. We've got to remember who our enemy is. Lost people are not our enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And they need to see the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ extended through us. They need to see the hope that we have is a hope that they can have as well. Amen? Amen? All right. See, I'm here to talk about the Antichrist, and I get all stuck on Jesus Christ. That's just important stuff. Maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. But on his head's a blasphemous name. At first, I believe the Antichrist is going to be very ecumenical. What does that mean? We see these 
political leaders that after a big event, they put every kind of religion on the stage. They've got everything from the, the, the Christian guy to the Catholic guy to the Buddhist guy to the imams to the, it's all covered. They even have, I've, I've even seen some Satanist up there. Some Satanist priest. Because we just, that's, that's ecumenical. And I believe the Antichrist is going to be just that. I believe he's going to come across as ecumenical. And he's going to be able to broker a lot of peace among nations because of how his take on religion and how he presents himself to those religions. But he will be anti-God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will be anti-you. He will be anti-his word. He will be anti the Jews. And he will be outspoken. The idea, I believe, is that he will be an outspoken atheist. And to take that neutral kind of ecumenical approach in garnering the nations of the world and their desire to follow him. Verse 2, now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, speaking of Satan, gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. These same animals are mentioned in Daniel chapter 7 with another vision where you see these four beasts. There was the lion that was Babylon, the bear which was Medo-Persian, the leopard which was Greece. And they all kind of symbolized what those world empires would, how they would play out. But then the last one was this like really weird, terrible beast with horns and crowns. And that was a picture of the Antichrist. Here, John, he sees just one single beast, but it, it has all of these characters that Daniel saw. And he kind of interesting, he's looking back, so he sees them in reverse. But in Daniel chapter 7, again, he's the little horn. Another horn, a little one coming up from among them whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in his horn were eyes like the eyes of man. And it's, it's kind of, the idea is it's talking about his intelligence and his perception. He's just going to be a very in, in, intuitive, very intelligent, very perceptive leader when he comes on the scene. And then in his mouth, he's speaking very pompous words. He's going to be very arrogant, very proud. And then... It talks about, in chapter 7 as well, you read on down to verse 20, it says, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. What does that mean? Is this going to be a good-looking guy? How many of us sometimes know that people will vote and follow a politician because he's good-looking? That's not us, I know. It's definitely not America right now, but... I'll let you land that one wherever you want to land that one. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> Where was I going before I just completely threw that out there? Oh. There are people that will follow appearance. And it's just, for whatever case, you know the whole nation of Israel when they wanted a king? You know who they chose? Not the little short, junior high, redhead, freckle-faced, probably bow-legged David. They were like, we like that guy. The tall, dark, something about human nature. And the enemy Satan who's behind all of this is going to capitalize on human nature. And in order to garner the following that he will get, even his appearance will be used. His oratory skills will be used. His intelligence will be used. And then... In chapter 7, verse 23, we don't have time to dive into all of this, but for you note-takers, it talks about like his kingdom is going to be different from all of the other kingdoms um, on the earth because of how much devastation the one world governance, he's going to have a one world government, a one world monetary system, a one world religious system, and a one world uh, military system. And what is about to happen on the earth because of him the devastation and the carnage that he will produce on earth will be greater, it says there in chapter 7, verse 23, than any other impact that a world empire has made upon the world. He'll trample it and break it into pieces. And then it says in verse 
25 of chapter 7 that he will be a blasphemer that speaks out against God. And so John sees him in the future as that. And looking back 600 years earlier, there's a prophecy that was describing just that. And it says he'll do it for a, for a time and a times and a half a time. That's three and a half years. And so the first half of the tribulation, he's going to come kind of a cool oratory, garnering the respect of these other nations, forming a government, bringing peace in the Middle East, reinstating daily sacrifices, a, a good broker of sorts, good-looking guy, charming, all of that. But halfway through, halfway through, his true colors are going to come out. The world will be in a very chaotic place when the Antichrist comes to power. I believe the world will be in a very chaotic place when he initially comes to power at the beginning of the tribulation period. But the global political leader that promised peace and is giving peace will actually bring total chaos and destruction. I recently read a joke about a doctor and an engineer and a politician that were arguing over which trade was the oldest. And the doctor said, you only have to go back to the garden where God carved a rib out of Adam to make Eve to understand that my trade is absolutely the oldest. <laughs> said the engineer, not so. God created the earth before that. And he took chaos and he made order out of it. So my trade is the oldest. But the politician laughed. And go, oh, hold on. But where did the chaos come from? <laughs> Who created the chaos? And it just fits. If you're a politician here, my, I love you. Thank you for your service. I'm not talking about you. The dragon, Satan, gives the Antichrist his power in verse 2. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders. You know, when Jesus was in the wilderness, you remember Satan was tempting him. And he's like, hey, here's all of the kingdoms of the world. Just, just bow down and, and worship me. Satan tried to tempt Jesus into not going to the cross but here you go. Here's all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I don't need those. He knew exactly what the future was to hold for him. But those same kingdoms are going to be offered to the Antichrist. And he's going to take them. So, he's a real person who rises to the world stage. Everyone's going to see him. He gains international recognition. He's going to establish himself as a peacemaker. Intelligent. Amazing oratory skills. Tall, dark, and handsome. He will be anti-God. Atheistic in his leanings. Ecumenical in his dealings. With other, other nations and other religious individuals. Brokering things that no man has ever been able to broker. He will become the leader of a ten-nation federation. Conglomeration of nations that came They'll all uniquely have ties back to the old Roman Empire. And he will be empowered by Satan. That's who he is. Now we get into like what he does. How does it go from like this peace guy to like, whew, worse. Verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed. And all of the world marveled and began to follow the beast. Now, it's one thing to wow Israel and to have them believe you are their Messiah. It's another thing to maybe wow the Arab nations to the point where you can rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount and reinstate daily sacrifices to them, all that brokering. It's one thing to wow an area, a specific geographical location on the planet. It's another thing to wow the entire planet. And this is the idea. How, how's he going to get the whole world to be in awe of him. We're not sure exactly what all this means. There's a few different ways of going about it, but I'd like to just break down a couple of words and let you land where you need to land. But mortally wounded, in the Greek, it speaks of, of 
something happening physically to someone to where they either die or they're perceived as being very close to death. So something's going to happen to this guy. He's already going to have world recognition, but it's going to go from like wow to worship. How do you go from wow to worship? I believe this is the event. And a good scripture for you note-takers is Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17, where it says about the Antichrist, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall be completely withered and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Again, we're not sure exactly what that is. And I don't believe this is written for us to sit down and like, form denominations, if you will, within the Christian movement over what this is. I believe the focal point is something happens and the focal point should be on how the world responds. They marvel. It's the Greek word thalmatso. It's like to be in awe, like to be stunned in awe of someone with wonder. That's the idea. There'll be such awe that like, The whole world, it says it, at this point will fall in line and follow him. Think of this happening to a world leader today. Not a national leader. The Antichrist will have more influence and more exposure and more popularity than any president or prime minister ever. He will be recognized by the entire world as a global leader when this happens. And so what it might be is, let's say, an attempted suicide. Imagine that happening. Someone's so like, whoa, everybody's watching him around the world. And then all of a sudden, something happens to him physically. To where the whole world is like getting moment-to-moment breaking news updates. Did he live? Did he die? Mainstream in every nation, every continent is running with this. This guy that has done so much to bring peace. This guy that is so wise and he's so gifted at speaking. And the, the world is like, wow, already following him. But now the hope they're putting in him is beginning to be dashed because it looks like he's either died or he's close to death. You know, today the... Uh, the Gen Z and the Gen Y and the, they got, I don't know why they, they got all, they got to categorize generations. When I came up, you were just like the young guys. The young guys and the old guys. They got it all fragmented apart now. But that, that generation right now, picture, you're not going to be here. Perfectly, your kids aren't going to be here. But picture TikTok alone. I don't know if you're a TikToker. I'm not. But from what I understand, Generation Y and Generation Z get 80 to 90% of their information from TikTok. And that younger generation right now, if you have, and we're going to get into this this year, so get ready. I can't get sidetracked. But that generation, the kids are in junior high to mid-college right now, are spending eight hours a day on social media. So imagine how many updates. Ding, 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 ding. The world's going to be like jonesing over this guy. Now, we're not going to be here. If you're an older generation guy, you'll get texts from your buddies. Your phone will be going ding, 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 but you're not going to be there to respond. Amen? You'll be gone. But social media is going to go crazy over whatever happens to bring this guy to a place where everybody thinks he's either dead or close to dying. That's how I picture it. Many scholars, you read about this, that's how they visualize this as well. What is going to happen? Notice it says, he was healed. That means that he had to be like noticeably bad to notice that he is noticeably healed. What is going to happen globally when everybody on their little devices that they worship their device and everything that's coming through that device, they watch this guy who's noticeably radically altered, might not make it or perceived dead, be healed. Follow me. Wow, or wonder is going to turn to worship. It's going to turn to worship. Do you know that the whole world, the Bible says, will worship this guy? They'll worship him. We see today a 
huge push for globalism, like a, a, a major push for globalism. And I believe that is because the world is in such turmoil. Escalation of starvation and disease. An escalation of violence and crime, homelessness, genocide, human trafficking, wars, the nuclear threats of, of, of China and Russia and, and, and Iran and, and, and North Korea. You see hyperinflation. We see a breakdown in all of our economies. We see a breakdown in our currencies, a rise in, in digital currency. We'll get into that in our next study and how that's going to play out in the future. We see corrupt governments in free fall. Venezuela, Haiti, and the likes, leaving their people impoverished and devastated and absolutely hopeless. There is a void, as I said earlier, for competent leadership. And it's setting the stage, I believe, for the Antichrist. There's a cry for a one-world movement. The Great Reset by the globalist, Klaus Schwab, who founded his economic forum in 1971. Every year he gets all of these elites, government officials, high-ranking government officials, high-ranking business owners and tech gurus. All of these governmental leaders and big tech leaders and economic leaders getting together and they, they agree that the world as it is is not working. They, they, there's a big like, it's not fair, it's not equitable, it's, 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 we're not honoring the planet. And in the name of that, they believe that, that democracies and what we see in human governments today are all failed, which they are, but they believe the answer is a one-world government. You can read their charter. You want to replace capitalism with socialism? Replace nationalism with a one-world government. And two, uh, four years ago, following the pandemic, Schwab went on the the record of saying that the COVID pandemic was exactly what they were hoping for because they knew that it would bring the governments of the world under one entity. Fascinating. So they worshipped, in verse 4, the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? And so Satan has always wanted worship. That's what got him cast out of heaven. He wants to be God. He wants to worship. He wants everyone to recognize him as God. And so down through history, there have been people that he's worked through to garner that worship. And in the end times, in the tribulation period, he's going to get that worship through the man that he's going to empower and help rise, rise to power. Now today, we, we have a hard time getting our minds wrapped around a world, even a part, a massive amount of people that would like really worship a man. I want to show you just a few pictures. They'll be familiar to you, but I just want to show you a few pictures that kind of capture, this is the Olympics. People from all kinds of nations gathered together. And when a man by the name of Adolf Hitler is carted through, everybody in that stadium would raise their hands and they would say in deafening tones, how Hitler, how Hitler. He was promising something to people that is very similar to what the Antichrist is going to promise in the end times. And it's one world dominance. So men will worship him and they'll say, who is like the beast? No one can challenge this guy. And so he opens his mouth in verse 6. Let's land the plane here against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. And that could be a reference to just that's where he turns. The abomination of desolation. And he's like walks into the temple and God. We went through a deep dive on that on Wednesday night again of what God does with his people, the nation of Israel, in the last half of the tribulation period. But Daniel 11, 36 through 37, says the exact same thing. Verse 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Saints here is not a reference to the church. Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would never 
prevail against it in Acts chapter 16. The church is already taken out. But there will be, I believe, large numbers of people who were not saved when the rapture came. They will be on planet Earth and they will give their life to Jesus Christ. You don't make a war with a few. You make a war with large enough numbers that you feel threatened by. And I believe that there will be a lot of people that will come to their senses when the rapture takes place. Let me get personal. I know we have loved ones, relatives, and we have friends right now. And we just kind of scratch our head. They, they, know, they know the Bible. I don't want to get into eternal security stuff with you this morning. I'm just going to be very, like, this is my heart. We love them. We want them to be right with God, but they're not walking with God. And we know if, if the rapture were to happen right now, we're not sure if they would go or not. We're just not sure. But you know, when we step into disasters, and I've been to some, some, some parts of the world, you know, Thailand and Japan and places they are so closed, like, like we will, places that, they, that we'll put you in jail if you push this gospel on us. And the, the, the disaster is so intense that what they were putting their faith in didn't work. And now they're just open to whoever's going to come by and give them some hope. And I believe that there will be a lot of our loved ones and our friends that will be coming back to Jesus or coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus because of how bad the world gets and they'll realize they were putting their faith in man. That's the mercy of God, amen? So you, you see it here. He's going to make war with, with people that are going to get saved in the tribulation. He's going to overcome them. That's why earlier, chapters 4 and 5, we saw martyrs around the throne worshiping the Lord. Those are tribulation saints. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, in verse 8, whose name, names have not been written in the book of life. And I love the description of the book of life here. We'll talk more about the book of life in Revelation 20, verse 12. What is the book of life? When you're born again... Man, I don't know, there's, there's, a, there's, there's an angel or someone, they're busy. They wrote your name in a book. A reservation has been made. Amen. Wives, don't you love it that one time a year your husband takes you to a nice restaurant? <laughs> don't you love it when, when they've went out of the way and it's kind of like, oh, it's Valentine's Day or your birthday. It better be one of those days. But it's, it's getting close to that and they're like, don't plan anything. And you're like, what? You know, just I'm coming home early from work. Whatever. There's a special thing that they're doing. Guys, if you're not doing this, please start doing this. <laughs> if you're getting a nudge right now, take that nudge by the name of Jesus. <laughs> but don't you love it, women? Hear me. When you walk into a restaurant and they say your last name, party of two. Isn't that just this beautiful thing? Cook, party of two, right here, right here. That's a nice restaurant. And women, can I get an amen with that? Yes? Don't you? Yeah, you enjoy that. But this is a reservation you don't ever want to miss. And, and women, by the way, your husbands don't make this reservation for you. This is between an individual and our God. The moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the earth... Your name is written in that book, the book of life, the lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. They are identified as those, the ones who are not written in that book are, are mentioned, man, I wish I had more time, but they're mentioned as all who dwell on earth. Let me summarize the word dwell. Dwell is where you reside. Dwell is where your heart is. Dwell is where you spend your time, talent, and, and, and treasure building. It's your home. So you have those who are dwellers, earth dwellers, earthly, kingdom-minded dwellers. You have those. They're not taken up in the rapture. Their names aren't in the book of life. That's, I believe... That, that now it's almost like the Lord through John is pinning down some things that, that I really do believe this, and we'll see it. I'll prove it if I ever close. But if, if we get to this point, he's like, okay, this is for the people who are going to be here. It's a warning right now for all of us so that we're 
not going to go through the tribulation and that we're ready for that trumpet to blow any moment. But for those that are like playing the game on God, that they shouldn't be playing on God, and they're left behind. I'm just going to put it that way. We see the mercy of God and the grace of God extended to them. Listen, if you're born again, your name's in the Lamb's book of life. Just rest in that, okay? Rest in that. This, this is kind of like, okay, this is for the people who aren't, and they're left in the trip. Well, where do you get that from, Lance? Well, verse 10, our last verse. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. In other words, for any who are here, this is important, and left behind, and they're going through just complete, they're saved now. They're tribulation saints now. And they're just going through because they did not take the mark of the beast. We'll get that in our next study. But they're, they're being persecuted. And many of them will even be put to death and incarcerated and whatnot. He's like, retribution is coming. God's like saying, there's hope. Don't worry. Paybacks are coming. But then he says this. And here is the patience and the faith of the saints. What's that mean? I believe it's God mercifully and graciously saying, hang in there. Even at the worst. I'm there. I see. I got your back. I'll respond. Be patient. Don't give up. Don't take the mark. Don't cave in. I see you, and I'll take care of you. I've got your back. And that's the kind of God we serve. Amen? Amen. All right, we got to stop. You guys are looking at me like you're hungry. Let's all stand. You guys enjoyed that worship today? Isn't that great? Yeah. So you're talking about just Thanksgiving, and um, we enjoy your families, man. Love on them. Man, read some scriptures. You know, assign. I always like to assign people, you know, like, you pray. No, 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 it was my turn last year. You pray. I love to just get everybody, like, talking about the Lord and praying and, and, and being thankful and, and have that. If you're a Christian and you're having something at your house, man, platform Jesus. Amen. Let people know why you're thankful. And love them. Love them. Put on some good worship music in the background. Yeah, but there's all these ball games on. Turn that off. Turn some worship music on and, and watch what can happen. And then as a church family, we, we're, we're, we're not going to be together. We'll be apart. But we're going to come back here next Sunday and we're going to have extended worship and we're going to focus on thanking the Lord. Amen. Some of you guys have been like, we love these extended worship Sundays. Sometimes we do a couple a year. So next Sunday, it'll be good. The Lord will meet us here and we'll worship. If we're still here. <laughs> Father, anyone here that doesn't know you, anyone here online that doesn't know you, but they are like, I need to give my life to you, I need to get right with God. If that's you, tell him. Just tell him right now. Say, Father, I, I don't want to be left behind. I need you. I want to give my life to you right now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Receive him right now. Receive his love. Just say, Jesus, I ask you right now to forgive me. I ask you to come into my life. Save me. And be my Lord and Savior. Ask him to fill you with his spirit. And Father, I would pray right now, anyone who's prayed that prayer, that you would affirm the work that you're doing right now. Flood their heart with peace. Flood their heart with hope. There's nothing better than when we've been pardoned by someone. There's nothing better than when we've been forgiven, especially when we know we don't deserve it. So may they sense the floods, the waves of your peace, your forgiveness, your acceptance. You're bringing them into your family. May they feel like they are yours right now and know in their minds and their hearts that they are yours. Bring salvation right now, I pray. Conversion. Followers. Make them followers of yours. Thank you for gracing us with another day where you have patiently redeemed another soul. We love you until 
you come back for us, may we be looking up. Be heavenly minded in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving.